mentioned last week that I looked back and we started in the book of Genesis, the very first year I preached, actually, was 12 years ago in January. Obviously, give me some breaks. This has been 12 years of Genesis. Uh, But we're going to finish, by God's grace, uh, Genesis today, Genesis chapter 50. Maybe next week will be a retirement party. I'm not sure what that is. Um, It's been a long journey. And so it is in Genesis as well. And so as we do this this study of Genesis 53, I want you to feel today. Not just hear. Not just see as you read. But I want you to feel something of the weight of this book. Uh, Often when the Israelites later in the Bible refer to their earlier history, uh, they would speak of the times of their fathers, uh, by which they meant the fathers of the nation, the the patriarchs. You know, we speak of founding fathers when we speak of our nation. Uh, When they speak of fathers, they're speaking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the very people whose stories we've been following along. So this is a book of beginnings then in a lot of ways, isn't it? Not only the, the physical beginning of our universe and our world, the beginning of all things there in those early chapters of Genesis, but it's also the beginning of a nation, of the nation of Israel that we're going to see come into its fullness as we move forward in the Bible. It's the beginning of God's promises unfolding throughout Scripture. We'll be seeing that from from one family generation to the next family generation. And ultimately, this all points towards salvation, towards Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promises made way back long ago, not just to Abraham, but even back in Genesis 3. Jesus is the one who will crush the serpent. Jesus is the one who has dealt and will completely remove the stain that the delight of our sins. That's what Genesis is all about. So it's no exaggeration to say that everything, literally everything, begins with Genesis. So, what do I want to do today? Rather than just uh, kind of wrapping up a few loose ends and and the Bible moving into Exodus, uh, which it does, uh, should be the big connection at the start of Exodus. Instead, what I want us to see is the the finishing touches on the foundation that everything else is going to build and and follow from. These sweeping pictures of, of sin and mercy and grace and strength towards the end of Genesis. So if you're not there already, I would encourage you to grab a Bible from the back of the pew in front of you. And uh, if you're one of those folks who has better attention span than I am and you can use your phone, well, great, browse there. But get to Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to pick up right where we left off with verse 15. Genesis chapter 50, picking up, 
faith is what God says it does. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they said this. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your a surprising note because here we have fear and, and deception really, don't we? I mean, earlier, what we had seen seemed to be probably too strong of a word, but the family is all reunited in in this passage. And yet, now that Joseph has passed, Joseph's brothers reveal a nagging doubt, something that had never quite gone away, never been fully dealt with, perhaps. What if, in their minds, what if Joseph was only being nice to them all this time because he didn't what Joseph's motivation has been. And now, with Jacob gone, what if Joseph's true colors start to show through? You know, as natural as those thoughts might seem, you know, it's the plot of a good movie or novel, isn't it? They don't actually follow it up. It's not as if Joseph was sold into slavery and just now pops back up on the scene. His long-lost brother returns, you know. The family's been reconnected, if not outright reunited to Joseph for a number of years at this point. The brothers, if you remember, have been convicted by God prior to this. There was that whole tearful reunion. And Joseph himself spoke of his own forgiveness and trust in the Lord going back to chapter 45. But in some sense, hadn't this all been they need to realize that there's something deeper going on. Because it's not as if Joseph hasn't proved his his gracious forgiveness over and over by this point. No, instead the reality is that these brothers know Joseph's forgiveness. And yet Don't we doubt at times the very things that we know? Uh, your, your spouse shows through thick and thin how much they love you, right? That they're willing to go to the ends of the earth for you. You're, you're living perhaps in a, in a virtual romance novel. 
and you get that really Or perhaps it's a, a lifelong friend, someone who has always kept their promises to you, someone that you, you have been able to trust through thick and thin, and yet, if you're afraid of trauma, something in your mind that History has been a fruitful one. And yet the thought is filling the little doubt remains, doesn't it? Right? This nagging doubt, my dear friends, doesn't come from being um, too wise for words. Have you noticed how often we're supposed to be that way? I've noticed it's made a lot of people miserable to have further thoughts. Because instead, this thought comes because we know how wicked and deceitful we personally are. We, we have tasted and seen some of the experience of sin and brokenness in our lives. And it's only too easy to imagine others wronging us. And who knows what could be worse? It's only too easy to think that all the ways that, that we doubt, all the concerns we have, our own brokenness is exactly what's going to happen if exactly what everyone else says doesn't happen. And so what we think ends up in us. And I think this explains something of the concern among Joseph's brothers. But it also explains our own doubt of the Lord. And it never fails in a crisis. that the wrong way, some of you, <laughs> but I mean, I, I know so many of your stories, and, and your integrity is how you have lived life, right? You are known for being a, a person of your word, and yet, I'm not perfect at it. You've known me long enough to know that I'm not either. You realize that, that far beyond us, there is one who has always kept his word, Right? And that is our God. His word to us has never been silent. And yet we doubt. We wonder. A trial, a tribulation, a hardship comes in our lives and we think, well, he said he would never leave us or forsake us, but now there are some signs that aren't happening yet. Jesus talked about going and preparing a place, but is that place in And, you know, Jesus talks about coming back for us, but, Pastor, it's, it's been six months. Really? Three months? My point is not to say that this kind of doubting is normal, because it's normal. It doesn't make it good. There's all sorts of normal things that we can do. Instead, my point is to say that, that Moses, the author of Genesis, is going to bring about something that we need to see and something that should bring tears to our eyes, uh, a weight to our shoulders. It should make us sorrow that we're so broken that we don't even understand the depth of forgiveness given to us by God. I understand fully. I feel fully. Not all the time, but fully. 
Jacob's brother, Satan made him steal the Adam's apple. Don't move on from these verses until you have recognized your own heart. Don't leave this passage without seeing your response. You are sinners. Our own words, our own deeds, our own thoughts. And that sin corrupts not just how we act towards others, but even how we think. What we think of our what we think of ourselves as well. This sin has crept deeply into you and I, so deep that it's warped our very hearts. We're afraid to be forgiven. We need someone to cleanse us. We we need help beyond ourselves. We relate that to other areas of life because I think some of you have have seen the benefit of getting help beyond yourself. Maybe with a counselor or a mentor or just someone who can work your soul through. Perhaps with a leading to some of that earlier well as what his wife said. What I tell people is that that sometimes, you know, I'm so wrapped up in my own view of things and, and, you know, I've got a good friend or a fellow pastor who just says, whoa, 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 Kevin, hold up a second. You you just said this. Is that really how it is? I needed someone outside of me to see the reality how it really just to see, but we also need someone outside of ourselves to fix our broken hearts, to mend our our, our warped, offensive minds. And so praise God that Joseph gives us an example of the way forth of this restoration process. What is it? Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's response at this point would be righteous anger. I mean, they've done everything for his brothers. Do you remember that? Right? Not only did they throw him in the well and sell him as a slave, but then when the famine came, remember, who was it who provided grain for the famine? It was Joseph. And when the famine got worse, who was it that brought them to Egypt? It was Joseph. Who was the, who was it who, who put them in the choice part of the land? where they would be together, where they would not have some of the destructive influences of Egyptian religion upon them and their families and their children. Do you remember? It was Joseph who had the plan. He's done everything in human terms for them. And now these brothers, when they all should be drawn closer together, the death of their father, now they say, that they don't know the first thing about trust and forgiveness? I mean, wouldn't you think Joseph would be, what, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> what do I have to do? And what they 
exactly what he does in verse 3. Jacob's patience and prayer shows us a small portrait of God's patience and prayer for me. In Joseph's response then, I see and I can list guys that it's just chock full. I see at least five truths that show us how to deal with our own not only between Joseph and his brothers, but also in in an ultimate sense as well. Do you realize that if God wanted to judge us, if he wanted to be the God of, you know, movies and comic strips and just zap us with lightning, he doesn't have to look far. He already has all he needs to condemn his son. One of the things I find so interesting about how people perceive or conceive of God. They think that he's kind of angry and, and judgmental. And I think, well, okay, if he is, then why are any of us still alive? Where do we live? What is God? Instead, you and I are to see that, yes, God is the righteous judge, but sort of dire struggling sense that it's so often portrayed. 
the fact is that God is in control and he is perfectly good. Even the most evil and heinous of actions can be transformed by him to bring about his ultimate plan. That's what Joseph tells us, right? Even what his brothers meant for evil ultimately hurt him. God meant it for good. Do you believe in a God who is that great, that powerful, that big, such that even the most wicked and terrible and horrifying things of this world, not that they're good, but they are God's good and he's even say, I'll put on another uh, take. I don't mean politics. I don't mean your views on vaccines and everything. None of the stuff that's on the news. I mean, what has God done in your life? I can't speak for everyone, but I can say those whose stories I've heard, who I've asked, far more often than not, this was actually kind of good to say. So what we've been told is this horrifying thing, and I'm not minimizing any of the impacts on the economy, society, certainly not the health problems and deaths that you three thought that would be at this Thanksgiving. I'm not minimizing that in the slightest, but do you realize that there is good that has even come out of such a terrible we can see that God has used some of our biggest struggles, our, our largest trials, the things that we wish we would never have to repeat. If we could edit it out on this computer, just delete it. He's probably used some of those things to grow us in some of the best ways that we could possibly This is what God that our God is greater than our sin, our, our wickedness, our, our evil. Because of that, it's these next words that are so amazing. Because God's plan is to bless us. Did you catch that? Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And how so? That it would bless me, isn't it? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's God doing? He's preparing for his people. He's upholding his promises. God's plan for Joseph then involved not only his brothers treating him as they did, but also that everything would end up putting Joseph in the right place, in the right spot, at the right time to rescue his entire devastating thing in his life. God And notice God is blessing even those who are wicked. And the wicked blessing deserve the recipient of the blessing of Almighty God. Isn't that true for us? 
There's not a day that goes by that there is not something I do that is sinful. A thought that crosses through my mind that I just indulge a little too much. A, a, a righteous anger, which is less than righteous. A frustration. But God gives His full deserve it, this is wonderful news for people like us this morning. And all of that leads to verses 15. Because God is this good, we get back to be Verse 21, so do not We don't have to worry that our our sin will overwhelm us. We don't have to fear evil and death. Truly, if God is for us, you know the verse, who can be against us? This awesome God pays for Joseph and his sinful family. This awesome God pays for you and me and for our family. He pays for us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die. The words are, are, are different here. I get that. But ultimately, Joseph is pointing his brothers to trust the God who keeps his promises, who blesses his people. In that sense, Joseph is giving us a little, like a, like a snapshot. Imperfect, yes. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Mashir, the son of Manasseh, with houses of Joseph in. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit me, and I shall carry up my bones to my Joseph died, being 110 years old, and I embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Unless we think that this story ends in some sort of a down note, ends with a funeral, Shed to tears. There is 
us. We think that Joseph's words are just sort of uh, empty hope. Man, I hope God keeps his promises. We read instead of how he lives by these very things. Joseph is blessed to see his own family line continue. Generations, by the way, who would grow up hoping in the God who promises that he never fails. And then Joseph reminds his brothers of those very same promises that were given first to Abraham. Promises for a land, a a blessing, protection. Promises for descendants, nations. Promises that they would be rescued then out of Egypt and brought into the land that he would give them. We don't need to look any further than the book of Exodus to see that God does even just that. So certain is Joseph of what God has said, but he calls his brothers to make a promise, a promise very much like his father said. And the promise is this. Joseph believes that a time genuinely, truly, surely would come when God's people would dwell in Egypt no longer. And when that time comes, Joseph's final resting place shouldn't be down in Egypt. It should be very in Egypt. Maybe in some tomb on the side of a hill somewhere. No, it was to be among his forefathers, among favorite authors I've mentioned him many times in the church Anglican pastor of yesteryear J.C. Ryle used to talk about how churches back in England or in his era 18 somethings in England you know what they were surrounded by the graveyard and so today if you get on Google Earth and you look up a lot of Churches in England, at least older ones, you'll see a graveyard. And when I first learned that, I always used to think, well, gee, that's nothing. And it's it's like, yeah, in prison, they didn't see it that way. No, they saw it as God's place of waiting for his people to be gathered up with Jesus to dwell, just as we read in the New Testament. They saw it as a picture of hope as a picture of God keeping his promises, of that cross promise that death has been defeated, that the sting of death will not last forever. That's Joseph. That is our hope, too. That what God has promised, he will do. We're going to go through much trial and tribulation in this. Some of you know that very well. Others of you are only on the beginning part of it. That we're going to sin in all manner of ways, large and small. We shall meet Mr. Jesus. We're going to endure much and worry much and wonder much. Right? That's what life so often looks like as we as we try to imperfectly follow our Savior. But God of all mercy has promised to show you. follow the path forged by, or even here by Joseph, of what it means to have such a deep abiding trust in the Lord that it all deserves. 
so that we would believe that our years on this earth, however few or many, are not the end, but only the beginning. Only the beginning of enjoying the grace and mercy and support of our promises that are fulfilled by Christ, the promises that Christ will return in all fullness with glory. Let me invite you, if this is not good news to you today, can I invite you to think and to look and ask yourself some questions. look like to have this kind of faith in Christ? What would it look like to say, I don't have all the answers, but, but God, if this is true, I know I can trust you. I believe you are my Savior. I believe you use this imperfect faith. For a number of you, I've realized this is, this is good news. For you, what I want you to see is that the good news never grows stale. It doesn't get old. It doesn't go out of date. It never gets bitter. And this is what you need to be refreshed with, to be filled by each and every day as followers of Christ. And this is what we need when circumstances, this is what we need to remember when there's a time of, of joy, everything's going well. This is what we need to remember when everything's falling apart. With our performance, our faith, our lack of faith, our weakness, and our Our Heavenly Father, enjoyment will only come not based on our own that in us. We need grace, but not our own. No, in our weakness, you are strong. We need you to do the work in us, day in and day out. The, the work in our minds, that we would believe you. That we would believe in spite of the circumstances that come into our own lives, the, the lies that we hear, or perhaps that we tell ourselves
for vessel that you awaken us to the truth that you fill us with your